I wonder if I might hunt for sherds in your garden. Sherds? Well, I have an archaeological interest. I'm a student of that in my own time. Old things generally. You're listening to Sherd's Podcast, a journey through the outskirts of literature. I'll go and ask Hugh's mam if he can come out to play. Can Hugh come out to play, O Queen of the Black Lake? No, he can't. He's in bed, and that's where you should be, little monkey, instead of going round causing a riot at this time of night. Where were you two yesterday, making mischief and driving village folk out of their minds? What village folk out of their minds? It's not us that's driving them out of their minds. It's them that are going out of their minds themselves. We weren't anywhere yesterday except walking about. I got go on there and woe there first thing in the morning, fetching the tell cavern cattle from Pen of Oil and picking a cap full of mushrooms on Freeth Wen after pulling a few of Owen Gorland's potatoes for ma'am on the way home. That was the opening paragraph from Caradoc Pritchard's One Moonlit Night, which was originally published in Welsh in 1961. A translation is by Philip Mitchell, and the readings in this episode are by Tris Rees. Today's book is a classic of Welsh literature, which, though greatly admired in its native country, is still shamefully neglected in the English-speaking world. Set in a small village in North Wales, One Moonlit Night is the breathless monologue of a young boy who unveils the sorrows and torments, the ecstasies and revelations of a poverty-stricken but close-knit community as it weathers the distant storm of the First World War. Join us over the next hour while we discuss what we consider to be one of the great novels of the 20th century, a novel that captivated us with its beauty and its darkness and perhaps most of all, with its unceasing mystery. We hope you enjoy our conversation. So, welcome to Sherd's Podcast. My name's Sam Pullum, and I'm here with Rob Prowse. How are you doing, Rob? Oh, very well. Thank you, Sam. Glad that I didn't just slip into a Welsh accent there. That was my biggest worry it's, for today. Yeah, it's very hard to, to hold back. <laughs> yeah, this episode is fairly monumental for us for two reasons, Rob. We've now been going for two years as a podcast, and it also marks the point at which it will become possible to listen to us speaking for exactly 24 hours, which is a, a worrying thought, isn't it? What a treat for the, the listeners. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I imagine up and down 
many countries, they'll be having kind of 24-hour parties with this kind of, you know, like uh, intense listening sessions. I'm, I'm, I'm certain of that. I mean, if you do, if you yeah. do have one of those parties, you know, write in and let us know what it was like. Uh, if yeah if you survived <laughs> <laughs> still still able to write at the end of yeah. it <laughs> so today we were looking at a novel that was originally published in welsh called one moonlit night by caradoc pritchard and it's the first novel i've ever read that was originally written in welsh rob is that the same for you yeah 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 i certainly think so definitely i mean i even had once upon a time i had a plan to to learn welsh and i even bought a teach yourself welsh book from 1960 and i might have i told you this before rob there's an amazing bit in the introduction of of that textbook uh it goes like this when you've worked conscientiously through this book you should be able to speak welsh understand welsh conversation and read an ordinary welsh book is that a sufficient reward Surely yes, but more will be added. If you're a Welshman, then you'll be a proper Welshman, standing on his own feet, with his own language, his own heritage, and not just a strange kind of Englishman. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Fantastic. I, a strange kind of Englishman. Yeah. <laughs> I love that that could just be included at the beginning of a, of a textbook. But it, it does give a sense maybe of how sort of marginalised the language it is. Mm. I doubt that many English readers could, could name even one or two Welsh language writers, which which is a, a real shame, I think. We, we know loads of Welsh writers who write in English, that are sort of part of the mm. canon, Dylan Thomas and R.S. Thomas, who also did write in Welsh, and obviously those metaphysical poets, Henry Vaughan and George Herbert and so on. But Welsh language writers, they don't just roll off the tongue, really. And it makes me think there just must be be so many voices out there to discover yeah. this book has intrigued me to to look into that a bit more is it the same for you yeah 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 absolutely i mean i guess especially considering the kind of the strength of feeling around welsh language and the role that plays in welsh national identity the assumption is that the, yeah as you say there there must be an awful lot out there but for whatever reason it's um, doesn't have the kind of visibility that it perhaps should do so yeah 100% there's even I know there's a big book that I want to get which is just basically a huge bibliography of all Welsh literature translated into English oh. and it's a it's a massive like 600 page text so there is a lot out there but it yeah, just doesn't okay. really seem to come into the mainstream very often at all but anyway this book is something I read at the end of last year and, and it was absolutely without a doubt my favorite reading experience of, of that year and I knew I wanted to come back to it uh, for the show but how did you feel reading this one Rob how did you enjoy it yeah I mean I can completely understand why it would it would kind of stand out of a whole year of reading because yeah similarly kind of just absolutely amazing I guess like blown away isn't really the right term for this book because it there's something in the tone that's quite subtle but it's it's stayed with me enormously and I just can't stop thinking about it yeah it's 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 just amazing really really amazing what what did you like about it so much there's there's something in its kind of like very deceptive simplicity that it kind of opens up this incredible world of yeah immense sadness but incredible joy and, and real real beauty both in the text itself and and also kind of in the, the community describes and definitely the landscape that is kind of everything is set in amongst the story itself is is kind of harrowing but also i don't know it, yeah one of the one of the kind of truest 
descriptions or embodiments of, of kind of what it's like to be a child and kind of absorbing the adult world in some ways and not others mm. that I've ever read. It's quite difficult to describe, I think, perhaps, uh, maybe problematically for this podcast. Yeah, yeah, we have our work cut out for us. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Because, you know, to describe it, it just sounds very, very simple and it's it's anything but, I think. Yeah. Uh, it's incredibly moving, I would say. Yeah, what, what, what was it that when, when you first read it that really struck out for you? Well, actually, you, you put that really well, this, this moment of being a child and confronting the sort of darkness of the, of the world outside your, your very small, insular view of it. But really, I think it's the voice that captivated me so much. The, the voice and the attitudes of a, of a young child have been captured so beautifully here. And I think it's worth saying as well that the, it's maybe the translation that makes it work so well. Um, it's mm. translated really palpably into Welsh English, isn't it? Yeah. You can't read the book without hearing that accent very clearly inside your head. You know, for all for all sorts of reasons. So part of it has to do with the recurrence of that term "do," mm. <laughs> which, which, as I understand it, is something like saying "gosh," you know, but but the word the equivalent equivalent in Welsh. So it's very close to the word "god." Is that right? Mm, yeah. But slightly transformed. The translator has much, made such an ev- effort to keep the flavour of, of Welsh English throughout, and I just think it's brilliantly done. I love the evocation of the landscape here a sense of community as well that I think comes through in the the way that people are named mm. so the translator's introduction explains that due to the relatively recent occurrence of surnames in Wales there are actually very few of them to go around so people tended to be known by their function in some way and so you have the the teacher as Price the school and the chief of police is known as Will Policeman, and his son is Little Will Policeman, and so on. And that frequency of names running through the book gives really, really concrete sense of community. Yeah, what captivated me most was the voice, the incongruity of the innocence of that voice and the, the darkness that seems to close in all around it. You know, from the beginning, there's domestic abuse and madness and even suggestions of child abuse or at least beating children and poverty and mm. religious mania and the, the great war looms over the book but that voice just remains really positive and able to find transcendence and beauty in, in the very sparse things of life you know we were talking about how how much he likes bread and butter mm. and, and milky potatoes and i think you <laughs> you did the same as me rob the the mention of bread and butter comes up so often you just think oh gosh I've, I've got to go out and get myself some bread and <laughs> just eat that yeah absolutely I mean you know we we talk of kind of influential books I guess quite a lot here but I can't think I can't think of too many that have had such a visceral bodily influence where I've been like yeah I, I, that's what I need to eat right now you know having been reading it sitting down and just had to put the book down and get up and make myself some so, you know nice slice of toast or something yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean I, and I guess the frequent mention of bread and butter and milky potatoes and lobscouse and so on. It is intended to evoke for us the deprivation, I think, of the child's circumstances. Mm. But the fact that he takes so much pleasure in it is is very captivating and and makes you very sort of sympathetic towards him. That and like the pleasure he takes in 
singing hymns and his friendships and i suppose the the thing that makes it so sad is that you know that innocence is going to crack it it has to and it just it makes for a sort of pervasive sadness in the book i think and i was i was very moved by it yeah that that's kind of what i loved so much about it yeah i think it's a really unique i'm going to use that word rob i think it's a it's a masterpiece you know we we mm. we we're quite hesitant to use that term, I think, and and wisely so when when we discuss books. But this one really attains that for me, and the fact that it comes from a periphery in a certain sense mm. has to be a huge part of why it's not better known. I think, which is a shame. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I wonder also if it's something to do with a very English attitude towards Welsh language, that there's an attitude, an English attitude within Britain, that any push towards a language that isn't English is somehow the preserve purely of those people that might speak it. Yeah. And so whether it's Welsh or whether it's, yeah, any kind of like Scottish dialect or... Or Manx or Cornish. Or... Yeah, 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 Corn- yeah, Cornish, yeah, exactly. That, you know, these things are fine and that, you know, we're all modern and that we can accept that other people might want to speak a language, but there's no, there's no kind of like inquisitive interest into the cultural production within that. And so I wonder if that's worth noting, as it says on the front of my copy of the book, that in 2012, I think it was, I'm just going to double check mm. that, uh, 2014, that this was voted as the greatest Welsh novel. Mm. And so, you know, it has like incredible recognition within Wales, but I don't think it has anything like the same recognition in a kind of like wider British English speaking world. No, and it's a great shame, I think, because it also, it does exist in a Penguin Classics edition. Mm. I, I've got one here from, this is 1995, this edition, I think. Uh, okay. Which is 25 years ago now, and it, it is available to buy, it's in print. But uh, this mm. this but this edition is is not so it's no longer published by Penguin in in the classics series. I kind of wish it would would be uh, reprinted because there is a certain reach, isn't there, that, that Penguin has. Do you want to tell us something about Pritchard's life? Yeah, he's born November 1904 in uh, Bethesda, and he's the uh, youngest of three sons of John Pritchard and Margaret Jane. So his father works in the Penryn Quarry and is uh, tragically killed when Karadok is um, only five months old. So he he grows up in a family without a father, so obviously is then echoed of the protagonist of the book we're looking at and the fact that the the main breadwinner is no longer around means that they kind of grow up in um, real poverty a lot of the biographical information i found comes from the welsh kind of like welsh national arts website Mm. uh, which has like a really really good biography of him yeah it says that he leaves school in 1922 which makes him I think 17 so I think he you know he's obviously doing well enough at school I couldn't find any information about this but that he stayed on because as we've seen from the book I think you would have probably left school a lot earlier than 17 and would have been working for a good few years by that point Mm. The narrator of the book talks about wanting to gain a scholarship if he passes his mm. exams so that he can stay at school a bit longer. The option seems to be for most young young men to go and work in the quarry 
or to go south and work in the mines. But then, yeah, so this this isn't the path he follows. And it suggested that he must be quite academically good at this age because although he is forced to leave school to get a job, the job he gets is as a sub-editor for a, for a weekly newspaper. And he becomes a reporter and then moves around various different papers working in in Wales. In Welsh is this, Rob, do you know? That is a very good question. And it must it must be because I think at this point the population largely is is kind of Welsh speaking and you know you we read in the book about the narrator is praised for his like very slim grasp of English. Mm. Uh, and they're seemingly the only people that speak English are the priests and some of the kind of like wealthier citizens. Yeah. I can't say for sure but I assume it must be in Welsh being local papers. But so in 1923 the year after he leaves school his his mother is admitted to a mental hospital in Denby, once again echoing the life of the narrator. And she stays there until she dies in 1954. There's kind of conjecture why she's there, that, that she's never got over the death of her husband and the kind of subsequent hardships of life that follow. In the book, again, it's it's never really said that there's one particular cause of the mother's illness. But we know this has a huge effect on Craddock's life and that he kind of feels this guilt throughout his own life that he's relatively open about that he wasn't able to somehow do more mm. or look after her. But importantly, at this kind of young age, in his early 20s, he begins to write poetry and wins prizes in the local... And now I'm going to have to try and pronounce something in Welsh. And maybe at the beginning, actually, of this episode, Sam, you could add a, a kind of trigger warning yeah. for <laughs> Welsh speakers. <laughs> some, serious, some serious butchery going on. He wins prizes in the local Eisteddfod something like that which is uh, a kind of literary festival huge events at national level as well as local level the pinnacle of which are the are the poetry prizes so he begins to win local prizes at these festivals and then in 1927 age 22 he wins the crown so the poetry crown at the Hollyhead National Eisteddfod he's the youngest ever person to win it and he wins it again in 1928 and again in 1929 and he's the only person ever to have won it in three consecutive years wow. so you know as, as someone who's completed what we now consider just a secondary education he's obviously incredibly incredibly talented mm. In 1927, the year that he wins the first prize, he also moves to Cardiff to work in another newspaper while simultaneously studying Welsh and English at Cardiff University. He graduates in 1933 and meets his wife, Matty Adele Gwen Evans, who is a school teacher, but also she becomes yeah very, very active in this Welsh literature scene. And in 1934, they moved to, to London, where Craddock yeah, carries on his career as a journalist, serves in the British Army in World War II, spending the last two years of the war in India, working for the Foreign Office. He never sees active service, but he's kind of like working for the British propaganda. And in 1946, returns to, uh, to, returns to London and joins the Daily Telegraph, where he works as parliamentary sub-editor. And he stays at the Daily Telegraph for the rest of his career. Oh, so he's so he wrote this book in London then. Yeah, the Pritchard household apparently was a core part of 
a kind of Welsh literary expatriate community hosting kind of like parties and events. Caradoc apparently was quite reserved or shy or, you know, wasn't necessarily, and it was really his wife that was the, the kind of main mover in those circles. Although he was behind the scenes working, so he, he edited um, Welsh language paper in the 40s and then in the 50s in London. So it's in um, 1961 when he's living in London that he, he publishes this novel, One Moonlit Night. I don't know if you fancy having a go at pronouncing the correct welsh title sam or uh... yeah i can have a go well i i heard a welsh speaker say it so i, th- ah, I think okay. it goes in nos olaleyad i think so <laughs> but yeah that trigger warning still applies rob yeah <laughs> <laughs> now there's um yeah as i say there's a there's a great biography online on the kind of welsh arts welsh national arts website there's very little information on him on wikipedia weirdly Although it does have a really beautiful description, I think, of this novel. Oh, do you want to give it to us? Yeah, where it just it just says, set in a mythologically subversive version of his native area. And I love that idea of mythologically subversive. Mm. The book itself is certainly very successful, although I think the fact that, as we've said, it, it highlights huge list of of awful uh situations the kind of like the poverty that the people find themselves in mm. there's kind of madness and paedophilia and drunkenness and extreme violence and domestic violence mm. horrible things so i think actually it apparently pissed quite a lot of people off as well yeah. who were living in wales at the time and describing a world of 40 years ago i suppose at the time it was printed and um i don't know obviously because neither of us can read well but apparently it's very specific to the dialect spoken in the Bethesda area. Ah. I can't tell you very much more about that, I'm afraid. <laughs> no, that's, that's fine. I think also uh, the Welsh spoken in the north and the Welsh spoken in the south are really different. I mean, that, that comes through in the way that the kids laugh at the, the southern accent of one of the characters that comes up. But I think, yeah, I think the differences are really significant, not just in terms of accent, but in terms of vocabulary and so on. Well, that's interesting. I didn't know it was written in dialect exactly. Yeah, although, yeah, it seems to yeah it seems to imply there's elements of, of dialect in there. The experiences of the book tally very closely with the experience of Pritchard's life. And it's something, you know, that even in, in London, quite far away, or per- perhaps especially in London, that, you know, there's a, a huge amount of guilt about both leaving his mother, but also leaving, leaving Wales itself. And he is described in certain places as an alcoholic, but he certainly had a problem with drinking. Mm. Yeah, it's something that seems to kind of like battle with for his whole life. The title of um, one autobiography is the... Aut- uh, hang on, is it Diary of a Failure or autobiography of a failure but something something like that yeah the beginning of this autobiography his stated aim in it is to discover where the worm in the wood and the rot in the apple lies so i think it's you know there's certainly a very depressive attitude that runs through this there seems to be a real split between his his work as a poet and as an author and then the continued work as a journalist for the 
for the Telegraph. He's self-described royalist and uh, Anglican, and so... And a Tory, he calls himself a Tory. And a, and a Tory, yeah, 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 yeah. Although, I was thinking about this, and I was trying to find some information about it, and I really couldn't find anything online. But in the book itself, he seemed to be quite eloquently and, and kind of positively about the strike action that some of the miners take, and the role that that kind of community might have, like a real positive aspect of that community for the people. The mine workers and the quarry workers that like the kind of union can provide. And so it would be fascinating because, you know, he would have been writing about Parliament, perhaps as Thatcher comes in, although... Uh... So he, di- he dies in 1980, doesn't he? Ah, yeah, okay, yeah. so... But certainly, you know, he's he's alive, or the end of his life kind of, like, spans the, the point at which the unions are at their, uh, at their strongest. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. the Tory party itself is, is certainly not in favour of that. <laughs> so, yeah, it'd be very interesting, I think... Although he's certainly a Tory, a self-proclaimed, I think it's perhaps a very different Tory to the Tory party of the of the later 1980s yeah. through to today. Yeah, a conservative perhaps. Yeah, small c conservative perhaps. So he's self-described as quite religious as well. Is he pra- practicing Christian? Self-described, I don't know. Again, from this from the Welsh Arts website, he is described as a Tory royalist and Anglican. So I assume he must have had enough of a religious faith for them to be able to distinguish it as specifically Anglican as opposed to the kind of like Welsh nonconformist prominent religion in that part of North Wales that he writes about in this book. What I can't tell you actually is how religious he is. Yeah. I think extrapolating perhaps from the book he has conflicting feelings about the role of the church perhaps. Mm. But at that point it's unfortunately guesswork. <laughs> Price the school never went to the blue bell at playtime again after that day when Cannon came to school to say that little Bob's school had been killed in the war. Dow, I'll never forget that day. It was after playtime and Price the school had been in the blue bell and his face was red but he was in a really good mood too and he didn't cane anyone. He was busy telling us about the Germans cutting off women's breasts with swords and slicing little babies up the middle when Cannon came past the graveyard window and in through the door. And he went to sit quietly at the desk without Price hearing him come in and put his flat-brimmed hat down on the desk and sat in a chair and wiped the sweat from his forehead with a big white handkerchief. Price didn't know he was there, even though no one was paying attention to the lesson, because we were all looking at Cannon. Price finally turned round when he heard him cough. Then he stopped talking about the Germans and walked very slowly to the chair where Cannon was sitting. Cannon was twice as tall as Price the school when he got up from the chair and the two of them talked together for ages and ages, with Cannon holding Price's hand with his own right hand and his left hand on Price's shoulder. And we didn't understand what the matter was until Cannon sat down and wiped the sweat from his forehead again, and Price the school walked slowly back to us and said that little Bob's school had been killed by the Germans. 
But what frightened us was seeing him fall to his knees on the floor and put his hands together as though he was going to say his prayers. And his eyes were closed and tears were rolling down his cheeks. Now, I'll never forget what he said either. God, who is my refuge and my strength, said Price with his eyes closed and the tears pouring, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea. Though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof, there is a river, the streams thereof shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacles of the Most High. God is in the midst of her, and that right early. The heathens raged, the kingdoms were moved, yet at his voice, the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Come, behold the works of the Lord. What desolations he hath made in the earth. He maketh ears to cease unto the end of the earth. He breaketh the bow and cutteth the spear in sunder. He burneth the chariot in the fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. I was beginning to feel ill as I listened to him. Oh, it's a shame, isn't it? I said very quietly to Hugh, who was sitting beside me. Yes, Hugh said, but how can he cry with his eyes shut? I don't know, boy. Me neither. I wanted to find out a little bit about Wales during the First World War and, and maybe even try to find out the number of soldiers, or Welsh soldiers, who had fought and died in that conflict. And the number was really not easy to come by, so I didn't have much luck with that. But I did read passages from, from an interview with Richard Van Emden, who, who wrote that book, Tommy's War. Mm. And he conducted a lot of research into underage recruitment and so on. And he was saying that many young Welsh boys obviously were working in coal mines and steelworks and iron foundries. And he asks sort of how scary was the prospect of going to war when that was your daily reality? You know, that at the age of 14 and 15, mm. you're already engaging in really physically demanding and extremely dangerous circumstances. And if you imagine that sort of coupled with the jingoism surrounding the war effort, we can mm. imagine that, that it might not have been quite as frightening as, as we imagine, especially if lots of your friends or older boys in, in your environment are, are going off to do that. But I think very clearly Pritchard sees the, sees the tragedy in that. Mm. There are many characters who are young boys coming coming back from the front traumatized by their experiences in the war there's obviously this big memorial ceremony 
to commemorate all the the mm. boys from the village that died and so on and we read a, a lot about how the only option for many of them seems to be to to go and join their join their fathers in in the quarry in this village in North Wales. This writer Emden was also saying that you know in that in conditions of terrible poverty that we see evoked in in this book as well. You know, to poorer families it was often a case of one one less mouth to feed. Mm, yeah, and also possibly the the chance of some money. You know, as a contribution from their army wages and so on. So I think there was often a yeah. blind eye turned to underage recruitment. I mean, I suppose that's true for many regions in Britain, not just Wales. The working classes become almost well. It's not nice to say it, but uh, fodder for that in mm. in that war. But I think it's maybe particularly the case in Wales when industry is is such that it is. I was also listening to a lecture by Richie Wood titled "Welsh Miners on the Western Front." and he was saying that miners could be recruited as and when needed for positions in tunneling companies in the in the first world war mm. so that probably was something that also affected the region quite directly yeah the impact of the war on the the village is really palpable i think it just hangs over the the book all the way through it's kind of on the periphery of the narrator's imagination let's say a lot of the darkness the experiences is either directly or indirectly a result of the war but there's no point at which he considers the prospect of himself going to war right because uh, i think the war ends within the book mm. but it's just all pervading as a as a sort of backdrop of this book I mean, certainly it seems like there'll be an opportunity there as well that as we see in the, the parade with the, um, the character whose name I forget comes home from the war and having been awarded a, a medal is kind of paraded throughout the streets. Mm. So it's certainly seen as, as a way of upping one's social status potentially, but also the very real danger because that same character is, is killed very soon yeah, afterwards. Yeah, yeah. But I think it's also very true to say that, you know, we read of two characters or two deaths. Within the book we read of two deaths. Price the school's son. Yeah. Yeah. Which is incredibly moving. Price the school is described to us as, you know, this kind of almost archetypal Victorian schoolmaster. Yeah. Very happy to cane the students for the slightest thing and this this moment where he's told by the priest that his son has died, he you know, sinks to his knees and, and cries in front of the the full classroom is incredibly moving oh yeah but at the same time it doesn't even make up the majority of the deaths we read about mm-hmm. um we read of deaths in the asylum deaths from suicide there's the narrator's father who i don't think it, is it ever explained no what's happened no to i don't father? think no. so no and there's also the narrator's uncle so both sisters have lost their husband to kind of un, unnamed tragedies. And so, yeah, I think you're, you're also absolutely right in saying that these communities, perhaps they were losing people at younger ages because of the, the age of the young boys that were going off to war. But perhaps it also... Well, and also, yeah, we, we read of the, the narrator's best friend, this kind of gang of three, uh, Moy? Moy, yeah, we, I think it's Moy. Moy, yeah. Moy, who dies of tuberculosis. So, yeah, so I think it is definitely a pervading sense, but it's also a death amongst others, and so perhaps is is normalised. And then there's also this, I don't know if this is a bit of a stretch, mm. the scene at the beginning of the book where Emir, Little Owen Nicole's older brother, mm. is that right? Mm. When he's 
he's died in the asylum and his body's returned. There's a description of him with his mouth wide open. And it really made me think so much of these incredibly famous images of the men suffering of shell shock. Mm. Perhaps not what Pritchard had in mind at all, but it really made me think that actually this kind of severe psychological trauma that we associate with First World War and the horrors of trench warfare, perhaps these things aren't so unusual in the kind of the poverty that is being described in this Welsh village, mm. uh, the kind of things that would, would drive someone mad and end up in an in institution that you then die in. Now, again, this is perhaps a very subjective reading of that, but that was kind of what I was thinking about. Oh, that's really interesting. I, I didn't think of that. Yeah, you're really right to pick up on the idea that it's not the only form of, of death we witness and not the only horror that hangs over the, the novel but it is something that is threaded throughout the novel you know sometimes these deaths are, are mentioned almost in passing as though it's just mm. another part of life at this time and it seems to be for the narrator who knows no different sometimes it's also mentioned with with great ceremony and there's a strong sense of the, the strength that the community is able to find in christianity although i think christianity is figures in a number of different ways throughout the text one of them is it's a great source of comfort during perhaps that memorial service and there is a huge stone engraved with the names of all of the boys who have, mm. in the village who have died and hymns are sung and so on. And the narrator is really moved by that gathering. Yeah, he describes it as um, 50 funerals all taking place at once, which kind of gives a, gives a sense of the scale. Mm -hmm. And it struck me, you, you mentioned when um, Price the school learns of the death of his own son. And he doesn't just kneel and cry, but he kneels in prayer, doesn't he? Ah, mm, uh, yeah, of course, yeah. He recites part of Psalm 46. Yeah, it goes, Therefore we will not fear, though the earth be removed, though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof. There's a real strong sense that the world is kind of coming apart at this time and there's a strong resolve not to not to let it destroy the community but it is doing so nevertheless and i think there's something of the same resolve in the narrator's attitude in the book and just quite how unshakable he is in the face of so much loss you know he loses both his best friends you know moy dies of tuberculosis as you mentioned hugh leaves to go to the south to become a coal miner with his father which is one of the most beautiful and mm. deeply sort of sorrowful moments i've ever encountered in literature just this sudden loss that hugh announces one day that he's leaving the next morning mm. to move to the south and we'll probably never see the narrator again it's it's very very sad but yeah so he's also without a a father and faces a very uncertain future and his mother is in under huge mental duress and so on but that insistence on the world's beauty remains in him he sort of refuses to be frightened by it partly because he doesn't understand the extent of it perhaps but i think there is greater understanding than we're led to believe throughout most of it yeah that psalm just made me think of his voice and attitude as quite reflective of it And then I started crying. Not crying like I used to years ago, whenever I hurt myself. And not crying like I used to at some funerals either. 
I'm not crying like when Mam went home and left me at Gitter's bed at Bulk Farm ages ago, but crying like I was being sick, crying without caring who was looking at me, crying as though it was the end of the world, crying and screaming the place down, not caring who was listening, and glad to be crying. The same way some people are glad when they're singing, and others are glad when they're laughing. Dear, I've never cried like that before, and I've never cried like that since either. I'd love to be able to cry like that again, just once more. How how would you describe the narrative style of this book, Rob? I mean. A lot of the kind of secondary reading that I was doing, a lot of it is described as a stream of consciousness. And I think there's an element of that that's accurate, but I'm not sure I wholly agree with it. I feel exactly the same as you, man. Yeah, I see that term coming up and it's not quite that. No. And I must admit, an awful lot of the the kind of secondary literature or second, you know, bits of commentary on this book, I've found myself disagreeing with. And it might be just to do with quite how difficult this book is to kind of pin down. Mm. But yeah, in terms of stream consciousness, I feel that, as we said at the very beginning, what the style of the book nails so perfectly is this element of perhaps even like forgetfulness, the kind of hyperactivity that you have as a as a child where things can be enormous one second and, and all enveloping and encompassing and then something else comes along and, and will take its place. And so, yeah, I think as an adult you can read it as sometimes these events haven't had the full emotional weight, but I think you're absolutely right in saying that there's an understanding which is perhaps suppressed or um, kind of is, is more than... Is being let on here Mm, Uh, mm. and I think the impression is partly to do with the style that these moments where we're seemingly we kind of move from one thing to another to another to another and this first chapter is I think the the perfect example of this that in this very short walk through the village we see the the death of Emir we see a young woman who's locked herself in the coal shed because she's being thrown out of her house we've seen kind of elicits goings on in a field i think this all happens in the first in the first chapter and then at the very end of the chapter (laughs) having kind of moved through all these narrative events he says um and that's and that's all that happened we weren't anywhere except walking about and i didn't know until this morning and then kind of goes on to the to the next bit but this this thing where it just said and that's all that happened and that, for me, sums up the narrative voice, that there's a, a kind of almost gleeful, not naivety, but there's um, something, at least in the beginning anyway, something kind of like irrepressible that is kind of bubbling up, that the narrator really wants to kind of like tell you about everything. A bit mm. like the way a, a child will kind of get lost and fall over themselves as they're attempting to tell you a story because they're hurrying on to the next part of the story yeah, before yeah, yeah. finishing. I think it's something that, gets ground down as the book goes on that these these losses kind of accumulate even though they don't seem to affect the narrator quite as much and perhaps the tone becomes a bit slower a bit yeah. more introspective and that in fact is is a really really powerful part of what makes the end of the book so sad the tone kind of loses its vibrancy somehow and yeah, slightly yeah, ponderous yeah. so yeah i think um stream of consciousness doesn't do it justice because there is something unconscious to it but there's also something gleefully fun you know it's a it's a terribly sad book but at the same time there's um 
a kind of vibrancy where where the narrator is so taken by what he's seeing there's moments of utter bliss you know thinking of the football match and the mm. the choir from the south who come to sing the boxing match the boxing match yeah and i mean they're actually they're all they're all these moments of getting lost in a kind of collective experience of of something whether it's kind of like violence or um kind of like religious fervor but there is a a joy in that that is then echoed in the kind of the joy of the small things that he experiences the the endless bread and butter and the trip to see the aunt which is a four hour four hour hike over a over a mountain which um, yeah both of us you know having having done a fair bit of walking will know is um, certainly not necessarily an enjoyable thing to be doing <laughs> purely purely to um, you know because the parish money has run out and you, you don't have any food at home so you walk for yeah. four hours over the mountain to, to go and see your aunt at a farm to, to then bring back food to be able to yeah. you know these terribly sad and um, kind of like brutal poverty but yeah again as you mentioned at the beginning that the thing that shines through there is the description of the landscape as kind of like dawn's first light begins to illuminate everything and he sees the town from this different angle on the top of the hillside it is really complex the narrative voice much more than it might appear on the on the surface i mean it can say why i think it's not really stream of consciousness what i think about when the term stream of consciousness is used is a sort of momentary filtering of the world through consciousness of the kind that maybe you find in Leopold Bloom's interior monologues for instance in in Ulysses whereas I think you're right first to say that there's something very unconscious about what the narrator describes to us but contrastingly there is a real hyper consciousness about the details that he wants to convey sometimes and what fascinates him and what upsets him which I think is complicated by the question of perspective so we think about the way that the narrative is constructed it's it's supposed to be retrospective you know it's supposed to be either a kind of internal monologue a thinking through of of these Mm. events in in the narrator's childhood but feels much more like a tale if feels spoken more than anything to me but at the same time seems to describe the events as they occur you know it's written in in past tense but we're only reminded of that when the narrator calls attention to the fact that there is a present tense to to this as well Mm. you know which is him walking through the village at night in the moonlight walking by black lake and there's a kind of indeterminacy there a kind of fracture between the, the way the events are narrated an impact they must have had on the speaker from that later perspective. From the perspective of the narrator's present tense, there is not often a lot of sort of signalling of the emotional impact that these past events have had. He's lost both his best friends, Mm. but he's also murdered someone. His mother has ended up in an asylum. And yet the voice manages to convey this sort of momentary quality, like you were describing, this momentary flitting from Mm. one event to another without a great deal of concentration on on the consequences of those events. It kind of like almost like a nostalgic reverie, becoming completely lost in, although it's past tense, like becoming so enveloped in it that it that barrier between past and and present kind of dissolves in a certain way. That gap between the past and the present and the events and their consequences is closed very occasionally, Mm. but it's often communicated through structure rather than through through tone. 
Mm. So, for instance, I was thinking about how at the very the very beginning we have a description of how the boys, I think Hugh and the narrator, are out heading off to steal pig nuts or something, and they they spy this mm. couple having sex. It's described this way: Why was Frank lying on top of Grace Ellen and nearly choking her? I don't know. Me neither. Hey, they must have been playing," said Moy. You know, and there's a suggestion as an as an adult reading that of real darkness there you know maybe s- sexual violence or something which mm. doesn't appear to be comprehended by the narrator at that moment but then that character comes in again grace ellen and she is refused communion at the at the church and there is a suggestion at least in the way that the narrative is constructed that the narrator does see some of the sort of willful narrow-mindedness of the community Mm. in agreeing with this idea that she wouldn't be given communion because she got pregnant out of wedlock and you know he comments on how his mother calls her a dirty little madam but he clearly feels some sympathy for her i mean i suppose what, what i'm saying is you know that he knows what happened from from his perspective structurally he knows it but he's able to stay within a kind of closed past tense for the most part and to see those events as if for the first time as he describes them that's why it feels it feels like a kind of stream of consciousness of the boy as he experiences these things rather than a recollection of events with flash forward to the present tense and and yeah. and an emotional understanding even though he's not a great deal older by this point but he has experienced mm. all the things within the novel the the kind of order in which things are, are revealed and that we begin to understand it kind of retrospectively activates earlier parts of the book i suppose Mm. because of course it is written in past tense from the beginning that we have to understand that all of it is known from the beginning and so that things that can seem deceptively innocent perhaps or naive are perhaps not as they seem and uh, Mm. there are these seemingly this ongoing conversation that happens two or three times in the book between the narrator and Hugh and the narrator and Hugh and Moy about why people might go mad and why they might try and hang themselves and what it would be like to hang themselves and the, the reason for those particular recollections rather than them just happening kind of chronologically as the boys are experiencing them but why why those recollections appear as they do as these kind of markers throughout the book become something very different from the from the standpoint of having experienced all that the narrator has Mm. so yeah definitely it kind of almost makes me want to go straight back to the beginning and and reread it with that in mind because i Mm. i just hadn't i hadn't quite thought of it like that but I was talking about the choir from the south who was singing on the side of the Breich over there the next Sunday night. Everyone had been having another look at the memorial and a lot of fresh flowers had been placed around it. And Hugh and me had been looking at it too and reading the cards that were with the flowers when we'd been for a walk by Stables Bridge and come up here to hear the choir from the south. Oh, poor things. It's a shame for them, you know, said Hugh. They're on strike, aren't they? I said. Yes, their wives and children are starving in the south, and they're going round raising money to buy food for them. Where are they staying? They haven't got anywhere to stay. They arrived here today, and the people in the village are giving them beds. Two of them are coming to stay with us tonight. Now, it's a pity we haven't got any room at home. 
I'm sure man would let them stay with us. And the choir was singing, as we remember the garden, his crying out loud, and his sweat run like droplets of blood. A back one so beautiful, now cruelly ploughed, and struck down by his own father's sword. Jesus, they're good singers, said who? They're a lot better than our temperance choir. Do you know why? No, I don't know. It's the coal dust that gets in their throats. That's what gives them good voices. Give over, you fool. It's true, that's what my dad says anyway. But quarry dust gets in the men's throats in the temperance choir too. That's what ma'am was telling me. That's why some of them drink so much, old rascals, ma'am says. Yes, but coal dust must be better than quarry dust for making people good singers. Oh, it was a lovely light night too. Not a moonlit night like tonight, because it was September then, and the sun hadn't gone down, and it was still shining on the little rocks on the side of the Breich and someone had been making a gorse fire on the top of the breich, and the smell of it was coming toward us, carried on the wind. I was wondering if it struck you at all how close religion and maybe religious mania or an extremely sort of visionary interpretation of religion seem to be within the book. They seem to have sort of fluid borders, I think. I guess maybe what was forefront in my mind earlier when I said that I disagreed with some of the commentary on the book that I've read, the the version I've got has a forward by Neil Griffiths, which is really fantastic and has a lot of interesting stuff. But he does also write about religion in the book quite negatively, and it's something that I didn't, I really didn't feel that the role that the church plays and that religious life is far more complex than to say it's just this kind of like overbearing presence that is just another thing that weighs down on the people of these villages. Because I think they, a lot of people seem to draw an awful lot of strength from it. Yeah, certainly the kind of religious practice extends far, far beyond like some kind of like dogmatic church practice and that there's a certain kind of like communal religious reverie which yeah having having done a little bit of research into it Bethesda's kind of almost in the year of Pritchard's birth is one of the hot spots of the Welsh revival which is a huge kind of like return to the church there's enormous amounts of conversions back to Christianity thousands of people in churches that would previously kind of not not quite full, having to put extra pews in the aisles and things like this. Mm. And a certain, perhaps what we would now understand as a kind of like evangelical fervour and a kind of like a religious practice that was far more tied in with people's everyday lives and linked with a certain visionary imagery where people would be in the fields or walking home from the pub and suddenly have this um, very intense visual, auditory, religious experience. You know, they would hear voices and they would see as fantastically named Will Starchcollar, uh, they would they would see rings of fire, and you know this was this was something that as part of the Welsh revival was was really happening and was, was very very present, and so would have certainly formed the background to Pritchard's own upbringing undoubtedly it's, it's kind mm. of happens in the, the early years in the 1900s and so as a young boy it would have been very very present I guess the fervour or the mania is very present in this amazing scene where the South Choir comes in 
and the, the bystanders begin singing with the choir to the point where the conductor can't get them to stop, no longer has control over the choir and that they're, they're singing. And I think it describes it in the book where the, the narrator and Hugh are no longer sure if they're singing or crying. They've kind of got their arms around each other. Mm. For me, the moment of kind of community in the book, it really comes to the forefront in these moments. And there's other kind of non, non-religious moments, but there seems to be, for Pritchard perhaps, a real power in that kind of religious community and a kind of non-conformist religious practice that is far more ingrained in the community and, and is really perhaps one of the few things that for the narrator's direct family really holds things together. His mother, her job is doing washing and ironing for the church and she's incredibly religious and in the end it's obviously not enough. But And his gran, his gran also is to be found reading her Bible. Mm. Yeah, seemingly something that is incredibly important to these people. And I think that, again, in this, the childlike simplicity, the very literal understanding of this type of religion, the way that as he goes to the top of the hill to pick bilberries, he wonders why, um, why he can't see any angels and why heaven doesn't doesn't look a lot closer than it is. Once again, what seems at first glance as a as a kind of like naive worldview actually is probably far closer to the kind of very real intertwined religious practice and the way that it has yeah, at this point in time historically completely permeated people's everyday experience. I was sort of interested in how the narrator's attitude towards it maybe make certain criticisms of that kind of religious practice. On on Pritchard's part, I mean, that there are sort of negative aspects of it. I think you're you're absolutely right that it, it, it functions as something that really brings a community together and, like you said, holds his family together in a certain way as well. I think it's at least suggested that the narrator is perhaps a, a little too fascinated by the idea of a visionary episode. Hmm. And I think that the reasons why we might think of it as negative become clearer later on. But yeah, after his mother tells him the story of Will Starchcollar, who yeah, walked home from the pub and saw the wheel of fire rising up and, and speak to him, we get this capitalized phrase, the voice. And the narrator can't go to bed because he's, or can't sleep in bed because he's so excited about that possibility and wonders if he can hear the voice as well. And in fact, there are several instances in which a version of the voice intrudes upon the narrative. So most notably at the very end of the book, but there's also a chapter, chapter eight is entirely narrated by the voice with a very different tone and diction to the majority of the book biblical or liturgical phrasing but its subject matter is not just spiritual at all you know the curious thing about it is that it's characterized by a mixture of the sacred and the profane you know sort of distinct Mm. distinctly sexual so just to take one example it says my thighs embrace the swirling mists and my breasts caress the low-lying clouds they in their precocity explore the secret places of my nakedness luxuriate amid the wonders of the deep then rise in guilty satisfaction to the heavens and i found these intrusions quite quite puzzling i mean i'm I'm really curious what you 
made of them but I, I was thinking several things but perhaps they're indicative of sort of emergent sexual drives within the narrator which have been sort of subsumed into the religious rhetoric that he finds deeply appealing and given that that voice the voice that intrudes upon the book is personified as the queen of the black lake where at the end of the book the body of Ginny Penkai will be found and given that the only explicit sexual experience of the narrators is with her, that those two things seem to be sort of melded mm. together in some sort of corrupt way so that iconography and the language of visionary religious experience like that is tainted and twisted in some way and deeply combined with profane and quite, and yeah, let's say what it is, murderous Mm. urges essentially i thought that could function as something quite critical about that kind of religious practice there's an element there perhaps of like an undercurrent of something incredibly powerful that is perhaps christian perhaps pagan that the narrator like one of the big sort of like unanswered questions of the book is that what happens when you know should should the kind of like narrator or should anyone give themselves up to those incredibly powerful urges whether there are this yeah emergent sexuality but also the kind of urges or the strange chaos that comes from on the one side kind of religious fervor but on the other side the fervor that comes from watching a football match or a boxing match that descends into extreme violence and mm. kind of desire you know kind of like a dionysian kind of fall into into um extreme violence and for me yeah i don't know like really really linked with an idea of the moon obviously the title of the book itself is one moonlit night and there's a suggestion of what happens in the dark recesses illuminated by this this body that obviously is traditionally associated with madness and the, the idea of the the lunatic but i was interested also for me anyway this was there was there's two really interesting elements where the narrator is unsure about whether it's him that's moving or that what he's seeing is moving. There's a description of the moon where he is unsure, looking through the window, of whether the moon is moving or the clouds are moving. And for me, that moment as a child is kind of about whether events are moving beyond your control or whether whether you're moving something or whether something is moving you. And that, for me, was partly what's, what's going on in that kind of dichotomy of losing yourself in this moment. Yeah, I think it's something that Pritchard doesn't necessarily fall either side of, of that question, that we might guess that the kind of Anglican faith might shy away from this, yeah, evangelical reverie but at the same time the way he writes about these moments there's such glee in the in the football match and in the kind of description of the boxing match and the freedom that could perhaps be offered by just giving yourself up to this movement of the of the crowds or the kind of some kind of like collective unconsciousness that can be both incredibly beautiful and incredibly violent but do you, do you think that that then makes the voice a kind of excuse of sorts as if these these particular urges are the culmination of this 
lifetime of repressing all the horror and, and sorrows that the narrator has experienced and then sort of externalizing them in this voice that has great power and sort of simultaneously asks for a kind of savior i would definitely agree i don't know about excuse as mm. much as a way of kind of like naming something i suppose that mm. it's, it's very difficult and i think the danger perhaps because i think maybe what's perhaps being suggested is that the descent into madness can potentially be irretrievable that you know maybe like will starch collar might hear the voice and become a good christian but on the other side you might hear the voice and succumb to it and um, never never return and you you end up in the the asylum that perhaps the book is unsure whether that risk is is too great the chance that you may never come back i found i found those kind of strange interjections of the voice incredibly beautiful and, and really really moving and it is hard to see them as something purely negative yeah i don't i don't think we can see them as as purely negative i mean they're so beautifully written they're quite densely poetic and it's a much more elevated tone than the rest of the the novel and there's something very very seductive about them but there is a clear seduction for the narrator in in biblical language you mm. know which seems to have been sort of subs- subsumed into this strange externalization of the voice so in that sense there's definitely a kind of darkness within it but i I read a completely different reading of the voice as well in a book called welsh gothic by a writer called jane aaron and she suggests that the black lake voice stands both for the mother figure and perhaps in some sense for wales itself and she writes about it like this she says Black Lake, which haunts him throughout the text and seems to speak to him with the voice of a deposed and despairing queen, yearning for an avenger of her wrongs. And she quotes, My kingdom is the grievous waters that lie beyond the ultimate sorrow, he hears the queen of the Black Lake say, to fight and to lose and to win and to be vanquished was my lot, to battle and to conquer and to squirm beneath the boot of the oppressor. And she goes on, the, the conquered queen appears to express the woes of his mother, of his community and of his country. And his own sense of a separate identity is swallowed by her excess of despair. I swallowed the sun, says the queen at last, and took the moon for a pillow to my resting place. Night, death and the abandonment of hope pervade the novel. I thought that sort of expansion of what the voice could be was really quite interesting. You know, when when she introduces this book within uh, Welsh Gothic, which is not a context I would have thought about it in, she mentions this incident with Capel Kellen, which is a small rural community that was intentionally flooded out of existence. Have you ever heard of that before? No, no. So this was in 1960, a year before the book's publication, and it was a private bill sponsored by Liverpool City Council, and they brought it before Parliament to uh, try and build a reservoir in the valley where that town was situated. And uh, despite all the protests of, uh, I think, all Welsh MPs, Mm. the project went ahead, and in in 1965 the village ceased to exist. It was was flooded completely, Mm. and and everyone living there had had to leave. So that's the kind of context in which she introduces 
a discussion of this book when we read those extracts of the voice you can definitely hear this sense of abandonment you know maybe echoing the the sense of abandonment of wales within britain and uh, an anger at the exploitation of its working class in the context of the war as well it's not something that immediately jumped out to me but i i do think it's curious to maybe think of the novel as slightly more political than it appears on on the surface yeah i mean it's so linked to the land yeah there's obviously a very deliberate echo of what happens in these sections narrated by the voice and uh what happens with the narrator and his cousin when he's told about the the queen of snowdon the kind of outline of this woman that people see in the in the mountains the kind of standing the like the voices standing for for wales in particular is is yeah definitely a very compelling reading it does feel like it's quite difficult to completely extricate it though from the from the religious because of how it is introduced in the book mm. and therefore what that might mean i mean i think i would definitely see the book as very political anyway in a sense because it, it's just so unsparing in its uh, portrayal of of quite how hard life was and cheap life is mm. uh, it paints a mostly kind picture of the community i think it it shows them struggling quite valiantly against the kind of hand they've been dealt and in that sense is part of a kind of like social realist far more left-wing tradition than than pritchard's conservative leanings might suggest whether you you take that political reading in, of the voice into account and you know there's this incident of Capel Kellen you know it hadn't fully happened but I think it already by the time the book was published certainly taken on the status of of a kind of iconic instance of subjugation of Welsh identity you know the fact that you could mm. just completely destroy a village like that so that a city in England can have better water supply is quite brutal and so there is something for me at least if not straightforwardly that political that would suggest that the voice is a kind of point of confluence for all of the wrongs and the darkness Mm. and the deprivation that is experienced not just by the narrator himself but by the community as a whole sort of culminating and, and bursting forth it's just very sad that the response to it is what it what it is in the novel so yes of course for every for every book we like to give our very own shirts rating so um in a change of roles today i'm going to ask you first Sam, what, um, <laughs> how many how many shirts would you would you award this one that's quite an easy one for me this time. I think I'm going to give this nine sheds. Partly because I was so moved by it and I think it's profoundly emotional and, and sort of honest book. But partly because it, it also it fits us so well, I think, mm. this book. This is precisely the kind of thing that I would love people to be introduced to for the first time you know and I'd love to see a book like this having a much wider reach than it than it does you know obviously it's really valued in in Wales and there are translations into other languages a recent Polish translation has come out as well but I would love this to take a place in people's minds as a great 20th century novel is it's so wonderfully written so moving absolutely beautiful so nine shirts from me how about you rob yeah i mean i've got to agree i think i think nine shirts is 
is only fair. It's just yeah, really, really incredibly moving, and has really stayed with me in the you know the short time since I've read it. And uh, it's something I'm sure I'm going to return to. Hopefully, I'm, I think it's one of these books that I'm probably going to rebuy a few times in my life because I'm going to give it away and never see it again, and then have to rebuy it. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, I've never I've never read anything quite like it, and so yeah, it's something I'll return to again and again. So yeah, solid a solid nine shirts definitely. I hope we haven't done too ham fisted a job of of trying to describe it. It is a very <laughs> complex book, um, yeah, which I think is sort of evident in the the struggles we've had with it, but very much worth worth people's time. So yeah, go out and get it definitely, and get yourself a loaf of bread at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> some, some bread and butter <laughs> thank you for listening to this episode of Sherds Podcast if you have any questions or comments about our conversation please write to us at sherdspodcast at gmail.com you can also follow us on Instagram or Twitter and if you like the show please leave us a review on iTunes thank you for listening and we'll see you next time